you know what you need. And now what you want to do, frankly, is you want to get less applicants, not more. And what you want to do is you want the wrong people to select themselves out of the process. So, you know, my applications always ask a couple of, I don't say difficult questions, but time consuming questions. The first thing I'll say to anybody is if you're using apply now on LinkedIn, give up. Because all you're asking people to do is take their resume, ball it up and throw it in your workspace. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Jeff Thomas. Jeff's the founder at Predictably.pro. And in this episode, I talk with Jeff about the crisis in sales hiring and a process for changing it. Now, according to Jeff's research, 55% of sales hires fail in less than two years. And I agree with him. That just doesn't need to be that way. So we're going to dive into a methodology that Jeff's come up with for hiring that is designed to strip the emotion and some of the implicit biases out of sales hiring. And we dig into how you can replace the way you currently hire with a more structured process that includes scorecard-based process that eliminates some of those same biases that affect hiring decisions. Now, look, here's the thing. Most sales teams aren't effectively integrating the use of data and feedback loops into their hiring processes. And, you know, you can tell on your own, your gut feel isn't working. So it's time to bring hiring of salespeople into the 21st century. So before you get to Jeff, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. How are you doing today? Doing great. So where have you been sheltering from the storm? Uh, I am in, uh, I've been fortunate enough to be at my house, which is in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, and I was, it's actually been a wonderful experience in, in a weird way because about a day before everything shut down, my daughter was visiting from Seattle and she spent the entire time with us. So we had about 90 days with her and, uh, she got to know her baby sister who we adopted about two years ago. And those two became best of friends over the the this whole pandemic so well that's that's nice yeah yeah yep that was one of the nice things that have come out of this weird so does she time. end up having to go back to work she, well so she just graduated from seattle university she had uh-huh. to go back a week ago because her lease was up so she had to go <laughs> back to clear everything out she is actually moving back to the east coast because she wants to find a job in uh in, in she, she's an art history major and so she's looking to work in a museum either in new york or philly or dc somewhere closer to home yeah i imagine that's those positions are hard to come by right now just uh, given what's going on they certainly can be, and she and I are are um, strategizing about either other things or how to make sure that she gets interviews. Um, and I, I, this is one of the first times in her life that I've been able to give her advice, and she says, "Hey, wow, that's pretty good advice, Dad." So, <laughs> <laughs> well, right, because that's the topic of this conversation is about the exactly. hiring and recruiting and so on. So, exactly, yeah. If not you, who? I would hope that that's how she looks at it. All right. No, you should get her into sales. She absolutely doesn't want to go there. I have a great <laughs> client that she could actually work for, and she just she's not willing to go there. So, really? Yeah. Well, you know, she'll come around. Yeah, sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She might. Sales, as you know, is full of 
lots of ex teachers and so on and people yes, that uh, yes. yeah so yeah, yeah. lifestyle considerations oftentimes yeah take yeah, priority yeah. over others so all right yeah. well let's talk about sales hiring you sure. you maintain that there's a crisis in sales hiring so why is that mm-hmm. well 55% of sales hires fail in 18 months or less so the now, crisis is is multifaceted. Well, let's, let's dig into that though. So fifty five percent. What positions are you yeah. talking about? I mean, you say fifty five percent sales. Generally, hires. it's considered SDRs. Yeah, SDRs, AEs, account managers, and frankly, although it's not part of the statistic that says fifty five percent, VPs of and and heads of sales have and, and everybody is probably heard this one, have an average tenure of 16 months or less. And that number goes down every single year. Um, so there's a, the, the crisis comes from a couple different areas. One is we often hire the wrong person. Two is we don't know how to give them the right onboarding and training. Uh, and three, most organizations don't understand how much time it takes for an average salesperson to get up and running. Well, all right. So <laughs> what's average? An average salesperson, yeah, I would I mean, say, you know, s- somebody who really needs to to work hard, who doesn't have the natural sets of skills that we try to help companies identify through our process. So, um, you know, you can go out and hire someone who is really successful in their last job, but if it doesn't fit your specific requirements, if, you know, a, a simple example is if you go from a product to a service, um, there, there's a, there's a huge difference between those types of, of selling environments. So, so an average salesperson, I would just define as somebody who can get up and hit their quota, but usually probably takes about two years. And that oftentimes seen as a problem by companies, but I, that, that's Absolutely. an interesting point is, is everybody matures at different rates. Everybody gets it at different mm-hmm. rates. Uh, yep. Have we set the bar too high? Absolutely. <laughs> um, and again, I, I try to avoid getting into this with, with what the company does. I would love to add on an onboarding and training component, but frankly, I think there's a lot of people who do that well. Um, and most companies waste hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, taking a salesperson, giving them enough time to be successful if they have absolutely everything nailed. You know, if they're the right person at the right fit with the right training and the right product and, you know, at least enough of a pipeline to get up and running. Um, but very few companies actually do that. And I know dozens, if not hundreds, of really good salespeople who go into a new organization and, and find out that, you know, if they're not hitting their quota in nine months, they're out. And, and frankly, that's, that's a huge disservice to the rep, but it's every bit as much a disservice to the company because now the company has spent $150,000 in direct costs, let's say, a uh, million dollars in indirect costs, you know, your quota, all the training, all the time that goes into, you know, getting this person up and running. Yeah. Opportunity and costs. They, uh, the opportunity cost. They just didn't give them enough time, um, and so mo- that's such a tough most- question, though, right? I mean, it's like, uh, <laughs> what's what's enough t- 
time. What's enough and, time? Yeah, and because I, I always like to use the, the analogy to sports, and I'm a huge soccer fan, as anybody listening okay. to the show knows. Yep. And, and yep. yeah, a lot of times you get a guy who takes. Well, I was just reading an article this morning about you know the stars of the English Premier League. Jamie Vardy plays for a team, Leicester City. Right. Uh, just about hit a milestone of 100 goals scored in the Premier League, which is you know very rarefied environment to be in. Sure, sure. And you know he didn't get into the Premier League till he was 28. When right. he was when he was 25, he was still playing weekend football club, you know right. Sunday football they yep. call it. Um, yep. It just took him a different period of time to 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 get to that to point. Get there. I mean, everybody yep. sort of gets at a different. I mean, at different rates. I mean, I. You know, I sometimes regret people that, well, not sometimes, all the time. I regret, <laughs> all the time, yeah. Regret, you know, pulling, pulling the trigger, if you will, on people too yeah. soon. Um, but rarely regretted giving someone extra time and then having them come to fruition and, and start yep. performing to potential. They'll pay off a so hundred times over. Yeah, so how do, you, how do we get, how do we change this mindset? Because it's... Well, yeah. I found one of the actual best ways to change it, and, and again, my my uh, thesis is that by understanding who you need to hire, by using the right scientific principles in in your hiring process, um, you're taking a, enough extra time to understand that this person is worth your investment. I can't tell you how many times I personally, and I've seen personally, you know, you make an offer to a salesperson and they walk out or you're talking about it, you know, amongst the the hiring team. And the general theory is, I hope they're good. I hope mm-hmm. this person makes it. And I, and I think that when you have that attitude, you're much more willing to pull the plug on it early. If you put the right amount of time in up front, and, and, and I don't think you have to put a tremendously larger amount of time in than people currently do. They put an awful lot of time in. They just focus on the wrong things. But when you have a good idea of what you need and you then can say, I have confidence that this this new hire has the skill set uh, to be successful, I think you'll be a lot less likely to pull the plug and not give them that extra nine months that they might need. Yeah, oh, I think what part of the the contribution or part of the uh, a factor that contributes to this you know, pulling the plug too soon is is that's this fixation and on hiring superstars. Sure, sure. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think that that everyone wants. Yeah, we want. You know, we want. Uh, and you sort of referred to it. You talk about a lack of star talent. But I just wonder yep. why are we so fixated on that because it seems to me we should really have a strong bench of people who are good. Sure. Sure. I mean, give me. I think give that's me, a great way to put it. Give me yeah. ten people who are good, as opposed to two superstars, four right. people who are good, and and four who are eh, right. I mean, I, I, want, I want good, and but unfortunately, it's like goods become a pejorative. You know, everything's got to be hyped up. So if we don't have a star, right? I, right I think person. that's a fair way to put it. But again, I think what you can do is, if today you're hiring good, you probably can hire great. If today you're hiring great, you probably can hire superstars. Um, and you know when you look at what the very what your top twenty percent of your reps do, and these are standard numbers that you know I'm sure you've heard heard before. The top twenty yeah. percent of your reps bring the in Pareto distribution, your, blah blah blah. Exactly. Um, yeah, and by so, the way, I'm not sure I 
completely buy into it. I mean, I think there are external factors that affect that. It's right. not it's not a normal distribution. It's what happens. But anyway, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. So, so, but but I think that there's always room for significant improvement, and it depends where you're starting from. Um, and and frankly. <clears throat> Most of those companies that are turning reps over every nine months are well behind on their quota. They're desperate and they'll do whatever they can in order to try to get a short term result when the fix is, is longer term. Um, and, and in all honesty, most of those companies I don't work with. And I'm not saying, you know, I haven't tried. Um, they just don't want to make investments. They don't look at this as an investment. They look at the salesperson either as being a good, worthy employee or a piece of crap. And, and I can't tell you again how many times um, sure. I've seen, you know, direct, uh, you know, it, it's always the salesperson's fault. Why aren't they doing what I would do? Because I was a great salesperson. Which is bullshit know, most of the time. Right? Uh, all the time is bullshit. For the managers, yeah, because, right? Yeah. There are yeah numbers you're not hiring you. You're hiring somebody to do a specific job and you need to give them the right tools to do it. Well, but my saying it starts with the BS that first of all the manager thinks they were good, and oh, <laughs> that's a, which, yes. which is re- very rarely the case. And that's you know, an I think excellent point. So much of what we uh, the problems we're encountering because you know this is a topic you know we could get a thousand experts to talk about for a thousand days and still not exhausted yep. about you know why isn't sales performing up to potential? Right. I think that we we have the complete wrong perspective on it, which is that. We want to point the finger at salespeople, you know, this bad behavior of salespeople, and they're not performing. Yep. And I use the analogy: it's like remember when we were kids growing up, there was always a kid on the block that your parents said to stay away from, right? And because you know, they sort of inferred that he just wasn't parented correctly, right? And this is what the problem is in sales: bad parenting. Uh, it's it's a, f- a fair and valid point, and I hate to say it, I see it more often than I don't. Yeah, I mean, we can blame the reps all we want, the sellers all we want, but but they're behaving in ways that the managers enable them to perform or allow them to perform in. Yep, yep. And and yet we you know we spent all this money training salespeople, and we spend virtually none training managers when it yep ideally should be the other way around. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good point. Uh, so I, I do yeah, a lot of coaching in my work, and and that's the other part is that managers and coaches are different things, even. Um, well, you know, yeah, and, let's, that's a whole different topic. We might yeah, we should look into, but but I but I think that a lot of it comes back to this idea is, is and we'll get into the sort of process that you advocate for and so on is that mm-hmm. is that you have to be able to structure your your hiring process in such a way to insulate you from the influence of poor managers making bad decisions to hire. That's a, that's a fair point. Uh, but I would actually argue that mo- not only poor managers are bad at hiring, but I would say good managers are probably oh, are usually yeah, bad at hiring. Yeah, that's because true. as human beings, we are bad at hiring. We, we don't do a good job at evaluating a person. Um, for a job in sales, it's a hard thing to measure. Uh, there's a lot of really bad salespeople who are highly social. They can have a wonderful conversation with you. 
Um, and what ends up happening is you play golf and she plays golf and you talk about golf and you have a good feeling and now you make a hire and it just, you know, it crashes and burns nine months later. And, and yeah. that's really where we try to, to help people understand um, as, a, as a species, we're bad at hiring. I used to have a line on the front of my home, on, on my homepage that said, you suck at hiring. And, and it really ticked a lot of people off. So I, 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 I sanded it down to say, let's face it, we're all terrible. And then I, even, I just took it off because people don't didn't want to, I was a little too much in their face about it. You know, they, they, they want to say, well, why, you know, help me understand why everybody else in my organization is bad at hiring. And, and frankly, that's a, that's a sign that you have a bad person at hiring. <laughs> well, so. yeah. And I think it's, this is not something that's purely a sales issue. I mean, there was an article a couple years ago in New York Times talking about this professor at Yale that done research on hiring and, and, yep. and I don't know if you'd seen that, but her conclusion was in this one study is that they were interviewing, I forget what type of job it was, but it was yeah. you know, working at a grad school doing something. And they had, you know, test group that they brought in an interview and those that they hired and evaluated purely on the basis of the resume. Yep. And the greater predictor of success was the group was, they hired just by looking at the resume without interviewing yep, them. Absolutely. And, and, and I agree it's, it's across all disciplines. Um, but what I just have found, frankly, is that there's more than enough work to be done in the sales area. And it's really the most expensive area to fail in in a lot of ways. Sure. Because again, it, it takes you 12 months to figure out, is this person even remotely on track in many cases? So, Well, yeah. I mean, that, that's absolutely true. I think, unfortunately, what happens more and more these days, though, is that you know, managers make up their mind really quickly. Yes. And because, hey, we've got a 90-day onboarding process. Mm -hmm. Thus, whether it's a SDR, which is one, one thing about onboarding in 90 days, is different with an AE on a complex sale in mm -hmm. 90 days. Is that really enough? Yep. But you got people, you know, making up their mind at that point, and it leads to yep. some of these these issues that I was referring to when you talked about sort of the eighty twenty distribution is is that the thing that complicates the hiring process and evaluating people subsequent to that is that sales is rarely a level playing field. You know, managers distort what's going on. Right, favoritism and how they distribute leads, the way they get, the <laughs> way they allocate, yeah. the way they allocate their their coaching attention. Because you know, I don't, I don't buy that that the lower sixty to eighty percent consume a disproportionate amount of resources. I actually think the top does, because managers tend to go, "Well, I want to support the people that are making it happen, so I'm going to give more of my attention to them." Right. And so, yeah, it's a good, yeah, good point. Yeah, we set this this playing field, and these expectations that. It's not, it's not equitable. Right. And again, you see people give up on those people who will end up getting fired in 90 days or 120 days or six months. Yeah. Um, the manager, uh, my personal experience has been to see that when top executives start to talk negatively about 
I don't understand why this rep isn't doing better or I don't understand, you know, why aren't they either making more cold calls or sending more proposals or closing more deals is also an inflection point when direct managers start to just say, you know what, I'm just going to distance myself. <laughs> yes. The winds yeah. are blowing this direction. And, and I, rather, yeah. than, rather than evaluate my own performance and helping this person get up to speed. Right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah just, and again, yeah. you you now have a $100,000 uh, direct cost mistake and a potential million-dollar indirect cost mistake. Uh, but you want to look good in your boss's eyes, so you go ahead and make that mistake because nobody measures your, you know, the real costs of these failures. Okay. Well, let's, let's by the time we have, let's go through yeah. your process. Sure. Uh, it's, I like it because it's similar in some respects to one that I recommend people do. Yep. And... Yeah, first of all, it's it's more data driven. You're trying to make a process that's more we're not making as many subjective decisions, but it's more of an exactly. objective decision at the end of the process, which is really what you want to try to do, right? You want to get the as much of the emotion out of it as you can. Right. And that's, you know, what 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 I learned, I started hiring people in the early 1990s. Um and I recall knowing at that time I was terrible at it. So, so I started just trying to figure out ways to be better. And, and for me, what has always been the case is I, I just struggled. I tend to be kind of a friendly, vocal person. And, and I hire, I always just wanted to hire the people I liked. And I, I feel fortunate that I was able to see that. So what I started doing as far back as then is piecing together all the tips and tricks and, and, and processes that would help me to really understand, can somebody do this job correctly? And so when I started Predictably uh, just this year, um, I really kind of took 30 years of sales experience and and about six years of consulting experience. I've been a consulting vice president of sales. So I've been Mm -hmm. the, you know, VP of sales at 25 or 30 different places. and Fractional VP. Fractional VP, exactly. Yeah, we've, so, we've all done that. Yeah. So, um, but but what what I realized in 2018 and 2019 was I had a whole bunch of good tools, um, or let me even say I had a whole bunch of good instruments. Uh, but if I were to put them together and have a conductor, you know, have people playing those instruments properly, you would get music. And so I, I took all these different tools and I built them into a methodology. And the methodology, there's just five steps to it. And, and, and I, I, the first thing I tell somebody is nothing that we do is rocket science. I hope people listen to this podcast and steal it. I let people use my process for free. If they mm. want to hire me to help them make it really work, I, uh, great. But, but I'm not, you know, I, what I've just done is taken the, a bunch of things, put them together in what I believe is the right order to help people get results. Okay. And so, you know what those steps are. Um, it just spells the word prism: profile, recu- recruit, interview, select, wow. and measure. I didn't even realize there was an acronym there. Look there, at that. There's an acronym in there. So wow, I need um, to pay more attention. So, <laughs> uh, so let's let's start with profile. Yep. Is because I think one of the steps that companies miss, and I think you really get into this, is yep. I talk about. Yeah, it's one thing to have a job description, but what they really the first step is they need to have a job specification. Right. You need to understand. Well, right. I, I say, I, yeah, yeah. You, a job description is what you're going to do, right? 
it's like, yeah, you're going to have to either make cold calls or you're going to have to close this business or work with these kinds of customers. But nobody, uh, very few people really take the time to understand what the requirements are in order to do that job well. Yeah, and I, I used yeah. that just to finish the description. Uh, the, so yeah. I used the analogy. I was like, if you're, you know, product marketing or a product person in a company and you say, look, we're going to make a proposal to manager management to build this particular product. What you're proposing to them is the job description, right? The description of what they're going yeah. to do. Right. But before they can start development, they need to have a detailed specification for what they're going to build. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and for okay, me, that's, that's yeah. the part that's missing in sales is we do the job description, but not the detailed specification. Yeah, you're you're 100 percent right, and so so I'm a big believer in assessments, um, uh, but I look at assessments as the first thing that you do with an assessment, and I'm not married to any given one. Right. You know, I've I've seen go- I've seen great results with everything from uh, disc assessments all the way through. You know, whatever assessment you use, or often you know, it can be the right one as long as you continue to use it, and so. What I highly recommend is rather than just using assessments for candidates is you be, you begin by assessing your current team. Right. Um, you know, so I'll go in and stack rank a team by department and then by the over the entire team. So uh, we then give what whichever assessment seems to work, you know, in that particular organization uh, and then use some data science. I have actually a data science guy who will come in and look at standard deviations and give us all the information about um, where are the true characteristics that that make somebody successful and and one of the easiest ones that i I love to describe and i've already started to mention it here is um many (coughs) excuse me many assessments rate sociability you know how social is a person how how friendly are they how warm are they um or how comfortable do they make you feel in almost every case there is zero correlation between someone having you know someone being socially adept and performing well that doesn't that uh, that doesn't mean that someone who performs well is not socially adept it means that just because someone is socially adept does not mean they will perform well and so the best way to get to those answers is to really look at your current team and you're going to need 20 or more people you know at a startup it's a little more difficult or a sure. smaller organization but we you know I can compare that the uh, startup's data against other companies and give them a good idea to say you know this particular new candidate probably isn't you know the right hire because you're going to like the way they interview I, I can tell you if you're going to, you know, I, I can predict the likelihood of an interview based on the assessment. Um, <laughs> well, but also to your point, though, is, is even with, with a startup, is the key thing that you said is really it's, it's, it's not the assessment itself because it's, right. it's, the, con- it's the continuity of using it because you build a base yes. of consistency and data that you can perform against whether the assessments are correlative or not. I mean, yes. I, I'm not a big fan of assessments other than just as a data point, if you want to use them as a data point, because Mm -hmm. first base, I think they're not very correlative, right? but, um, you know, salespeople notwithstanding for them, but, but, but if you use it, use it consistently because, and to your point, start with your team. And if you're a startup, maybe you don't have 20 people. I bet you've had 20 people. So if you start doing it and over a year or two, you'll quickly build up that base of data. Yep. 
Yep, you're 100 percent right. There's 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 a study that shows, um, and I think it's from the folks who do the Miller Hyman uh, work that shows if you use an assessment regularly, it's valuable. But if you use an assessment periodically, it's actually worse than not using it at all. Yeah, I'd buy that. It will lead you to the wrong conclusions. And one of another great example that I love to use is um, one of the assessments that I like measures the likelihood that this person will be willing to leave the job. Right. You know, what's their propensity to job hop? And very often, good salespeople have a high propensity to leave a job because they have a high level of confidence in their skills and they, they operate a little bit independently. So they're willing to leave. But if you only give that test to two people and, and somebody's highly likely to leave, you, you say, oh, I don't want to hire that guy. Um, and, and, and again, when you start to look at your best people in a, in an organization or across an industry, the best ones often are very willing to, to job hop. And that's where, again, back to our earlier conversation, you need great managers, you need great leadership. You really need to keep those people engaged or they are going to go. Yeah. Well, the, the, the cynics view of that, of people, not that I'm cynical, but, (laughs) but of, of people that are willing to leave or have a propensity to leave is a that they're unrealistically confident in their right. abilities, a la Dunning Kruger and the Dunning Kruger mm-hmm. effect, and they're never if they've had a history of leaving quickly, is they're coming to you less formed than the resume may suggest, because yeah, they've never been in one place to develop skills to to stay long enough. Yeah, that, yeah. that's a fair point. So, but it's, um, but, but to, I think but I, the bottom line on this, and I just want to make sure we fit it all in before we go, is is yeah. is that. You're creating consistency. You're creating, uh, a, you know, sort of a, a baseline of data that you use yep. to assess your current team. That you assess the potential new people against. Because again, whether you completely agree with the assessments or not, if you've used them consistently, you at least know mm-hmm. people that are performing well in our current environment had this, you know, score, these, or these characteristics, right. or whatever, and. Okay, now this gives yep. us more information to say as we evaluate these people. Yeah, we may really like this person, but yeah, they're they don't significant. Quite hit it. They don't quite hit it in some respects. And yeah, believe me, I I I understand that. I mean, I I I, <laughs> I was uh, I had the CEO of one of the major assessment companies asked me to take one a couple of years ago, and yep. uh, yeah, he calls me back afterwards and says. Were you trying to game this or something? I said, no, no. And they said, oh, well, geez. <laughs> your, your score was so low. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I was like, he's, uh, it's like, yeah, I'm yeah, suited to be a shepherd, not a salesperson, I guess. You know, tending I, I, a flock have, in the field. But yeah. yeah. I have a profile that I frequently refer to as upside down. Um, and it's a weird set of um, skills that, Maybe ten percent of great salespeople have, but it's 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 almost exactly upside down from what a normal profile would look like. And so I give that every so often, and 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 the person looks terrible, um, except for the fact that when you have benchmarked it against many people who are are actually really good at what they do, they're just different. Well, um, that's, but, and that's that's yeah. the thing that's and you talk about this is yeah you don't want. A homogenous team in many different respects, right? We have diversity in all sorts of absolutely uh, of areas, and it's and it's so it's this thing is like okay, well, yeah, people are going to come in based on different backgrounds, different upbringings, whatever. They're going to perform different on these assessments, and it's like, how do you catch those 
those people that have the potential. Sure. I, I give the example of one client I worked for for years where the number one salesperson, this was primarily inside sales, but not exclusively, but mostly inside, pathologically shy. Yep. You would you That's would no, the upside down part. <laughs> you would no longer you would never have interviewed that person in a million years. Uh-huh. Or you never hired him if you did interview him. Yep. But he, but he was a killer. Yep. And that that whole it's almost a, an aversion to being social and and oh, to, to being like a typical to being a typical salesperson is part of that for that upside down concept. But he made comfortable um, so, uh, customer so comfortable because yep. he was incredibly knowledgeable about the field, uh-huh. yep. but had none of the sales quote unquote DNA that right. you know, trumpeted around at all. Right. Which again, I think is a BS concept personally, but but. Yep. <laughs> yeah, because clearly I don't have it. Because I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, absent that whole gene, I guess. But you and me somehow, both. Somehow I found a way to make it work. All right. right so, so let's. So then we, yeah, let's move on. Let's go to recruiting. Sure. So the idea about recruiting, I, I you know, I don't want to say people brag about this, but um, you go on LinkedIn, and especially now, you know, in this this COVID environment. Um, you see that uh, a job goes up for an account executive, and in two days they have over 200 applications. That's a disaster, in my opinion, because now you can't make a decision. You have too many things to pick from in order to make a decision. So one of the things that I uh, work with clients to do is you know what you need, and now what you want to do, frankly, is you want to get less applicants, not more. And, and, and what you want to do is you want the wrong people to select themselves out of the process. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, my applications always ask a couple of, I don't say difficult questions, but time-consuming questions. Um, I, I, the first thing I'll say to anybody is if you're using uh, Apply Now on LinkedIn, give up. Because all <laughs> you're asking people to do is take their resume, ball it up, and throw it into your workspace. Right. Um, and, and look, I've done it. You know, when I when I was looking for a position, uh, you know, I see something. If if I really would believe in it, I would take the time to write a cover letter and do some research and and work my way in. If I didn't care that much, but wanted to see what would happen, easy apply. Yeah. So. So you want to have an application that's a little bit difficult, um, that really requires the, the, the applicant to put in a, uh, enough work in order to even move into that part of the process. So, so we help to, try to, to create this application so that you're not going to get 200 applicants. You're going to get the right 50, hopefully. But now you have 50 applications. So, so every step of, of the predictably process uses a set of questions, and then a rubric or a way in order to evaluate those questions that gives you a score. So, for example, you might mm-hmm. ask somebody, you know, tell me about your, uh, here's an example, you can even lead people in the wrong direction and see what happens. Um, you know, tell me about a time when uh, you had to make 200 calls a day, or t- tell me about a position. If you had to make 200 calls a day, how well you did at that? Now, you might be looking for an SDR that only makes 60 calls a day. So, so, so again, you, you, you can fake them out a little bit, letting them think you want you know, this person to talk about 200 calls a day. But what's mo- most important is anybody who reviews that application has a set, uh, gives a score to every single answer. Those scores are typically 
descriptive, but each description carries a a number. So right. out, outstanding, awful, okay, you know, and so. Um, you can have multiple people reviewing applications, especially which I think if you, you should. Which I think you should. Uh, yeah. uh, agreed, and, and and ideally you want have you want to have multiple people reviewing the same applications. Yes. But depending on you know how many people you have and how many applications, sometimes you have to split it up. And you say, Andy, you're going to do these fifty. Jeff, you're going to do those fifty, and Mike, you're going to do the the other fifty. Ideally, the reason, the reason yeah, that multiple ahead. people review the same applications though is that we start getting rid of some of the subjectivity. And that's, Absolutely. That's, that's the value of the scorecard approach. Yep. This yep. data-driven approach is, look, if I have four people that are looking at this and they're making a score, an assessment yep. and a score of the answer, that's way more valuable when we get together at the end to sort of assess the scorecard. Absolutely. Knowing that, which is true for, and you refer to this as well, in the interviewing part, I think increasingly this is the way you need to interview people. Yep. And it, it shows... Uh, yeah, especially in startups and tech companies, we say, look, yeah, you, you bring people in for that, you know, multi-interview day. You got mm-hmm. five interviewers, and I tell them, which I'd be interested to see your response. I say, look, you all, you have one person they'll do the deep dive on the resume. Yep. But then you have maybe four people that are all going to ask the exact same questions in the mm-hmm. exact same order. Yep. And people are horrified by that idea because they yeah. think, well, I'm the world's best interviewer. What are you talking about? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, no, you're you're all bad interviewers. You might be good yeah. conversationalists, which is different. Yes. And this then gives you a basis to actually make a judgment on the answers when you can compare. Well, hey, we asked, we considered these were important questions to ask. Yep. And I love throwing in questions that that talk about people's values, people's character. Mm-hmm. And we got more than one person assessing that. Assessing those same answers, and that's exactly yeah. how we approach the whole interview process. It's is, so, so powerful. It, it, it's it really is, and it, you're right. It feels a little bit weird, um, you know. But but you, it's the best way for you to get solid, predictive information out of an interview process. When when you have the five people do you know spend all day with with that client. Um, what you come up with is three of them might have liked the person, one of them might have been okay on it, and the last one might have hated them. Mm-hmm. But but it's it's just about it's about feeling. It's not about you know how well are they going to do these do the job. Um, I use a database of about six hundred questions. Every time I see a good question, I toss it in there and I rank them according oh, cool. to different, cool. different you know. And so I'll go into a place and say, look, here are here are the right eight or 10 questions for you. If you really want to mix it up, I'll give you six and you can, everybody can add two on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, 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 you can, you can do that as well. I also like to, in the interview process, have multiple people involved, um, meaning a two on one type of a scenario, because, uh, we as humans, uh, when I'm talking, you might be listening, but you're also thinking about what to say next. And vice versa. Sure. And so, so when you when you add an extra person in there, it, it puts a little extra pressure on the applicant, and and we want to do that, but it also allows the interviewees, I'm sorry, the interviewers to listen and judge and grade every one of these answers. 
And so the system that we use actually, um, you know, you literally go through, it's, it's, it's almost like a survey and you ask a question and you can put your detailed notes in there. And then you say if it was, you know, a good answer, a poor answer or a great answer. And again, we just kind of tick over on the side. We don't show it to you at the time, but now you get one points or three points or five mm-hmm. points. Mm-hmm. And so when all is said and done, each, both of those two people involved in that one interview process, that there's a numeric score that comes out uh, for that particular applicant. Yeah, well, I think it's it's important for people listening, hiring managers, to, to really yeah. understand the concept, which is you are going to have a total number of points available for it to you as a yep. candidate. And yep. you may say, look, we've, we're going to have a cutoff line. You know, People have to be above a certain line. We've created a certain baseline criteria. Right, but now, most importantly, to something you've you've talked about and and we'll get into is is we're gonna say, look, maybe a total available score is thirty five. We're only gonna hire people that are thirty two and over, let's say, right. for example. And now, a year from now, we're gonna look at our thirty twos and how did our thirty mm-hmm. twos do? Yeah, and maybe we've made a couple exceptions with a thirty and a thirty one. How did they do? How did they do? Yeah, and now we can say, okay, going forward. Let's tweak it. We decided actually maybe we need 33s and, yep. or, and 29. 33s, yeah. or 29s. <laughs> maybe the 29s did best of all. Let's focus on some 29s, but you have the data to be able you to do it. You have the data to do it. And, and that is and, the last stage of our process is measure. Yeah. Well, um, and people just have to get over this idea that they can do this without data, that their intuition is correct. And right. Well, there's another really interesting measurement point that is incredibly valuable to companies and, and and we're jumping out of order but this is this is, you, you yeah, raise a great it's my point. show i can do whatever i want yeah <laughs> um when you do measurement you can go back you know through our system what you can do is understand that say hey jeff interviewed this guy and and he gave him a 35 or he gave him a 10 is jeff a good interviewer or not He's the Soviet uh, skating judge. Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> so, so, so not only do you get to, by, by using data, do you get to have an understanding of what were the overall results for a candidate, but you start to understand what are the overall results for the interviewers. Mm-hmm. And do you need to train your interviewers better? Or in some cases, just say, you know what? We're not going to let Jeff interview anybody else. Yeah. You know, we're going we're gonna to pop in somebody who, who tends to be better at predicting. I, years ago, this was back in, I guess, 2005, worked with a woman who was, um, we were hiring for kiosks in airports across the country. And she just had a sense, uh, you know, I, 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 she, if she said to hire somebody, I was 100% behind her. Um, and, and I trusted her opinion more than I trusted mine. Right. And, and I guarantee you, if you looked at my results against her results, you'd have been like, Jeff, you can't be involved in these interviews. We're going to have Allison do all of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> this, this whole idea of prediction, I, my favorite quote about this is, is Niels Bohr, who was, was a Nobel Prize winning physicist you know, involved in yeah. the development of the nuclear atomic bomb. And yep. you know, he said, prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yes, yep. that, right? that's what it is. Yeah. So, yeah, because there's so, so many so, variables. Yeah. So, so that's the, you know, we have a recruiting process, which is the applications, and then they all get rated and ranked. And the right, you know, that, that line is drawn for who moves forward to the interview, which is kind of where we, we left off. All the interviewees get rated and ranked, and then you, def- you determine who moves forward to select. 
And so that's the, that next and in many ways the last stage before measure. Um, selection is about a bunch of things. Um, you know, and, and, and we tend to forget that there are parts in the selection process that just torpedo the entire system. So, so, you know, I'm a huge believer in role play. Um, and if you're not doing a role play that is somewhat aligned to your business, you're probably losing 50% of the predictive capability of, of your, the rest of your process. It's, you're almost wasting your time. Why so, so much, why so much emphasis on the role play? And, be, and not that I totally disagree, but I mean, I've uh -huh. got a, a caveat to that, but go ahead. Sure. Sure. So, so, so let me explain how what we do with the role play and then explain why you know we see it as being so important um i'm working with a client right now and they've a very specific sales process and mm -hmm. they have a very limited amount of time in which to sell their 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 interview i'm sorry their um their sales calls are 15 minutes or less and reps have 30 of these scheduled every single day so what we do with new candidates is we bring them in and we actually spend a full day with them before we make a we make an offer. We go ahead and um, bring them in. We train them on what the script is. We let them listen to some good calls and let them listen to some bad calls. We then do the first role play. And the first role play is to see, are they able to be brief enough to be able to, to do this entire sale in 15 minutes? Are they coachable enough to have, uh, let me not say that, are they smart enough to have absorbed information in the last two or three hours to, to start to be able to craft a pitch? I tell them, I don't care if you get the facts wrong. The facts don't matter. It's, it's, are you learning the concepts? Mm -hmm. But then what, we, then what we do from that role play is we just start to give a little bit of feedback. And then we move away from the role play for an hour or two. Um, and then we come down and do a final role play. And the most important thing about that final role play is did they take the coaching advice that we gave them earlier? Exactly. And that's the caveat it, I was going to yeah, throw out there. Yes. I mean, role play is great, but to make it, you know, not only say predictive, but to make it valuable, yeah, did they take the coaching? Did you provide did coaching and did they take the coaching? Exactly. And 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 so the way I used to do it um, was we would give coaching, you know, literally on this call, we'd say like, hey, Jeff, you know, I really wish you said it this way. Why don't we go ahead and do it again? Well, unless I'm terrible, I'm going to be able to, to take that coaching. Right. But but as I give coaching throughout the day to to these uh, prospective hires, and then we stop the process and just go listen to some other calls or have other conversations, that's really where you see how good can they take your, you know, the feedback. Now, a complex sale, it's a lot harder to coach a complex sale than it is, you know, in this particular, in, than this one that I am explaining. So, so a role play for a complex sale, um, often should have things that people don't think about. And those things might be, I'm going to give them a, a page or I'm going to send them an email and say, okay, these are the people, uh, the, the, these are the parameters of the sale you need to make. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and these are our role play actors on our side, right? So we're going to say, Andy is the CFO, Jeff is the VP of sales, and Mike is um, the CEO. And now what you do is you have them actually start to do a little bit of research in this, 
in a fictitious type of a sale, especially sure. when it's complex. And and you start to ask them to do the first part of a sale, which is incredibly important and something we never evaluate, which is, are they able to figure out what's important to the client? Mm-hmm. You know, Are they able to do discovery? Are they able to do those kinds of things? And so that would be the example of a different type of a role play where, where you have you know, much more, a longer process. I, I would ask somebody to do two or three hours of preparation through this process, or I would expect them to. And again, this comes down to sometimes people are like, I don't want to do that. Well, okay, then I don't want to have you be on the team. Yeah, you know, I mean, you're asking that uh, they do this before they come in. Yes, but but they've already been through some interviews and they've had an opportunity to ask questions. And if they're not that interested, I'm not that interested either. Uh, you know, I, with with this one client I'm working with right now, we spend eight hours with every single applicant. I'm sorry, every final candidate. Yeah, going through right. a training and a role play and a whole day, and and. You know, that's a huge amount of time to spend. Uh, Mm -hmm. So if we're going to make that investment, we expect that you are too. And we've had cases where we did it on a Saturday, you know, or, Mm -hmm. you know, where where the person can't get away from work or something. So, Well, I find it amazing that in this day and age still that that there are candidates for for jobs, especially even more senior jobs. It could be a frontline manager or a director of sales or something who are blindsided with this idea that – yeah, we don't take for granted what you say on your resume that you've done or things that <laughs> yep. we, this is an important job for us. We're going to do the best we can to validate and verify that. Yep. And yep. yeah, I always use the expression yeah, that Ronald Reagan used back when talking about arms control with the Russians. Yeah. Is, yeah, we're trust but verify. Yes. Is, yeah, interview is no place for trust. I mean, it's we're going to try to validate and verify. Your job is, frankly, to find out where they're lying to you. <sighs> because, yeah, they are you know, somewhere. Because <laughs> they are. And, and, and in all honesty, so is the company. Oh, but sure. that's a that that's a whole nother you know we can spend two hours on on that i my, my, the one of my favorite things to ask people is who do you think lies worse in the interview process <laughs> the company or the the applicant but yeah well they're both selling each other right so I mean, exactly yeah but yeah. there's a couple other pieces to this whole selection that are really critical um i will go in with a client and i moderate that selection meeting um, so everybody comes together at the end of the process and they're, they're going to say what they think. And 80% of the time, the first person to speak, if they are for the candidate, the candidate gets hired. And if they're against the candidate, the candidate doesn't. Because they're the first person usually willing to stand up and give an opinion mm-hmm. when everybody else, in all honesty, is just going, I don't really know. I'm not really sure because I couldn't tell. I liked the person. It seems like they can do the job, but I don't really know. So, so, so I'll ask for people to, before they come to the meeting, send me their decision. Just to, to write two paragraphs or three mm-hmm, sentences. Mm-hmm. And then we moderate the discussion. And we work very hard to make sure, for example, the CEO doesn't come in and say, I hated that person or I loved that person. Because again, there's your decision. And everything that you've done up until that point is now moot. Yeah. So, so, so we try to really turn it into a moderated discussion so that the positives and the negatives come out. And also we try to make sure, and this is when possible, that multiple candidates get discussed at the same time. 
Mm-hmm, they get mm-hmm. compared against each other because often when you're just looking at one person versus an open job, you you settle for either they're they're terrible enough that I'd rather leave it open or eh, maybe they'll do okay. Well, and I think that and that's such a great point is because I think again if you're a hiring manager or even a seller and you're listening to this mm-hmm. is this discussion you're describing mirrors to a large extent the discussion that you're customers have the stakeholders and the decision when they're making a decision about you is that everybody wants to have this fantasy in their mind that oh yeah there's nine stakeholders they all have an equal voice yes it's like no there's and there's been research on this uh, steve martin out of uh, usc right um is that no there's there's quote unquote a bully in the room, yes, right? But I'm gonna steal that from you. Yeah. The bully. And that, yeah. And yeah, their opinion counts more than everybody else's because they're as you said, they're willing to stand up and advocate and be more fervent than that. And so to your point about yeah, asking people ahead of time for their decisions, I think yep. it's genius. Um yeah. and so when they come into the room, if you're moderating that discussion, if you're leading that discussion, you can say, well, why is only John standing up? Because yeah, Jennifer, you told me beforehand that yeah. you thought this was the right person. So, what right. do you think? Yep, and it forces them to even deal with their—I'll call it their insecurities about interviewing—and hopefully, also get better at it. Yeah. Now, again, if they've run through the process, they also have, and whether you give them this information or not is up to really kind of the way you want to run the process. But you know, you can let Jennifer know, hey, here were all of your scores for this particular applicant. Or for each of these applicants, this is how your your process came out. Yeah. Um, and so usually you'll want to let them have it, but sometimes there's some companies that say we don't want to we, we don't want to turn it down all the way back down to just a number. Right. And and one of the things I do in every one of our um, scoring events, and again, you score at the application, at an interview, yep. at a role yep. play, is you can override the score. You know, I we usually ask a question that at the very end that has a whole lot of points or a whole lot of negative points that lets you say something like, regardless of the other answers, do you think this candidate should move forward or not? Or, you know, do you think that there's a reason why you might have scored them poorly, but you still think they're a good candidate? Yeah. And so, because again, you, you, you the people are the decision makers here. We don't want, uh, you know, I, I'm a, and not a believer of AI for hiring. I'm not no, a believer for right. AI for looking at resumes. I think it's just it's a it's a terrible thing. You want people to do it, but you want to give them the tools to do it right through the process. Exactly. Exactly. All right, so. Jeff. Fantastic yes. discussion. Thank you this so much. This has been, been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, people want to find out more about what you do and connect with you. Sure. How can they do that? So uh, you can reach us at our website, which is predictably.pro, P-R-E-D-I-C-T-A-B-L-Y.pro. And you can also just reach me at jeff at predictably.pro. Excellent. Awesome. Look forward to doing again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. So grateful for your support of this podcast And I want to thank my guest, Jeff Thomas, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate that. Do that all on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help with that. 
And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>